Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, and we're hopeful that what we talk about today will still be pertinent at month's end. We've put together a baseball writer's bonanza, Thomas Harding, who covers the Rockies for MLB.com. How you doing? Feel good. I feel clean. Um, actually, seeing baseball in front of me is kind of a cool thing. It- nice. Alex Spear uh, covers the Red Sox and Major League Baseball for the Boston Globe. How are you? I am uh, as confused by this year as anyone else, but still here. So thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. And Alex Coffey, who covers the athletics for The Athletic. We have two Alexes. Hey, Alex. Yeah, this is redundant on multiple levels, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stay sane. So, all good. Uh, all right. So let, let's start. And Thomas, uh, start with you. Um, and all three of you can answer this. How are you doing? And what has the experience of trying to cover the start of spring training version two, I'm not calling it summer camp, what has it been like? It's been really strange because this time of year, you, you, I'll, I'll drive to Coors Field and the body almost expects, okay, I'm getting ready for a game tonight. Who, who's pitching? What are the storylines here? And then you're watching something that kind of sort of looks like spring training in a major league ballpark. And it is kind of bizarre at this point. I mean, I wasn't covering the major leagues during previous strikes. I was in the minor leagues at that time where it wasn't affected. So I'm, I'm watching something really weird. And sometimes I do allow myself to say, Hey, this is normal. Or or you almost allow yourself to um, feel like you're in those hours before the game where maybe someone's throwing a simulated game, but then you look at in your peripheral vision, there's a mask that you're wearing and you see guys wearing masks and you, and you realize uh, this is like nothing you've ever seen before. Alex Coffey, uh, spring training for you. What's it been like? Um, you know, I think I might be the only <laughs> baseball writer in America who would say that it's been slightly familiar because I've never covered a full beat. Like this was my first season on a beat. And um, I had gone to spring training in February before it got, you know, shut down and everything. So all I've done is off-season and spring training. So, um, like, I don't know how the rhythms of the big league season are really supposed to work. So I guess, like, weirdly familiar would be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Alex Spear, I know that, that you're covering it uh, largely from home. What, what, have, yeah. what has it been like for you? Yeah, well, I'm uh, though, though I share a name with Alex, I think that my experience is like an absolute kind of mirror image of hers in that <laughs> I'm used to being around spring training. And because, you know, we're, I'm at a place at the Boston Globe that's fortunate to have um, a good staff, you know, a multi, I, I'm one of three people who uh, regularly, you know, covers the Red Sox on site, at least. Um, but by virtue of that, um, there's only one, re- one reporter per outlet that's allowed at the ballpark. So I haven't been to Fenway Park and there's a very good chance that I'm going to go rarely, if at all, over the course of this, uh, over the course of the remainder of this season. So for me, it's entirely bizarre because I'm not actually seeing any baseball. I'm taking part in some Zoom conversations uh, in which I'm looking at colleagues uh, who are masked up, um, and uh, and that's that is my exposure to this, you know, kind of rumored resumption of baseball. Um, so it's it's really bizarre, you know. I'm seeing, in addition to those colleagues, I'm you know I'm, I'm seeing manager i'm seeing some red sox players but uh yeah this is uh this is really weird and it's uh it it, i'll i'll say candidly it makes it harder to feel like it's real that baseball has restarted because i haven't actually seen it aside from the same uh the same kind of like twitter clips experience that uh that a lot of uh, that a lot of readers get do you have any sort of sense as to what the vibe is around the team? Normally, that's a very cliched kind of question that we would ask during spring training uh but i don't i don't know that anyone can really get a sense of it 
Yeah, I mean, the the way in which you figure that out is usually to have the opportunity for kind of small talk around the team in the clubhouse um, with players who you've been covering for some time and, you know, and uh, and with, you know, and with fellow reporters and with, you know, team officials, whomever. None of that is really possible right now. So it's uh, I think that you get some sense of the anxieties that some of the players have, uh, some sense of some of the excitement they actually have to be back together playing baseball again, but uh, you're trying to put together a, a very large puzzle when you only have a few pieces, when you're, especially when you're in my position of having had so little direct contact with how the game is unfolding. And maybe I would guess that Alex and Thomas may, maybe have a, a different, maybe they, they at least I would think have a few more pieces of the puzzle. What's, what's the vibe around, around the A's? A little bit more heightened tension than perhaps on other teams, just because the A's have a couple um, at-risk uh, they have an at-risk player in Jake Diekman. Um, they have a at-risk coach in their pitching coach, Scott Emerson, um, who has diabetes. I'm sure that there's a degree of this on every, you know, on every team. But I think like one of the consistent themes that we've been hearing is just um, how the players, since they're not in a bubble or anything, are going to have to really hold themselves accountable. And there's been a lot of communication going on about what the risks are of like, you know, not holding yourself accountable and being responsible when you're, you know, out of the ballpark and stuff. And um, so, so that's been one, one theme that I've been getting from, from talking to different players. seems like the point of emphasis is listen and learn. Yeah, definitely. Just like out of respect for, you know, Diekman and Emerson and all those guys, especially. So Thomas, uh, what is the vibe around the Rockies? Well, first of all, they do have a couple of at-risk players. Uh, David Dahl had his spleen removed after a collision on the field in the minor leagues when he was in double A. And also Scott Oberg went through an autoimmune disease. It's a rheumatic. um, Now I can't even remember what it is because and I just wrote it yesterday. But he went through that in college to the point that he had to walk around with a cane to get the classes at the University of Connecticut. So they have a couple of those guys, but those guys have been in touch with their doctors. Of course, right now, Charlie Blackman is not participating, even though they, no one said it, but he tested positive during the run-up to spring training. But the situation with them, and, and I think partly because of what they saw with Charlie Blackman and a couple other guys had some scares, is there's – they are calm about this thing. Part of it may be that Denver has had generally lower incidence of this than, than other places. And I think there's an understanding that just because you test positive, and especially someone like Charlie Blackman, who he always talks about baseball being his life's work. He, he told uh, some national audiences during the break that he was willing to quarantine if he had to because this is what he does. When a Charlie Blackman can test positive, What it says is you can do everything right and maybe you're around one person or maybe you you walk past something literally in an area and you can catch this thing. So there isn't that – because the guys are emphasizing taking proper care, there isn't this kind of finger pointing like you got sick and it's your fault because people are getting sick and it's not their fault. I want to get to Ian Desmond uh, in a little bit. Is there any other comment that you've heard from a Rockies person or a player that has particularly resonated with you uh, in the lead up to this or during it so far? Well, it is clear that they have gotten together in the message that they keep putting out there. And Bud Black is good at this, at kind of keeping guys on message. They're saying, 
it looks like the healthiest team is going to win. And it's like they're repeating that to each other to try to, to, try to link health to um, quality on the field. Um, because it, uh, there's only one player right now, Ian Desmond, who has decided not to play this season. And they feel like, hey, they feel like a couple of years ago um, where they were coming off back-to-back postseason runs, they feel like they can get back there because it's essentially the same roster. It's, it's, it's such an odd thing to kind of feel like you have to say to each other, I guess, in this, but I, I guess that's, that's what gets them through it. Yeah, th- yeah, it is. And you, you, you want to have something to rally around. And that's kind of been what they've done is they're going to rally around this. Um, in fact, even a couple of the pitchers I talked to, they said, listen, people are going to get sick along the way. But if, many, if most of us can stay healthy, maybe we have a chance to put a representative team out there and win ball games. Alex Coffey, uh, has there been a, a comment that you've heard that's particularly resonated with you? I think just how brutally honest that certain players have been about what the what's at stake here. Um, you know, Liam Hendricks went as far as to say the other day that, you know, if guys, if some of the younger guys on the team are irresponsible, that it could kill players on their team. Um, and, you know, I, I, obviously, like, most of what, like, players have been saying is, like, they're going to be responsible and they're going to be careful. And, you know, it's like softer words, like softer language, but hearing, hearing him say, like really acknowledge that like death is a possible outcome um, kind of like took me aback. I think that's what sticks out in my mind when I think about players talking about that is just the forthcomingness and honesty about what's at stake. Alex Spear, what about you? Yeah, I think that similarly, uh, JD Martinez talked about, uh, talked about, how he believes he is, he is of the mind that uh, that the team that stays healthiest is the one that's going to uh, is going to win in the end. Uh, and then Colin McHugh said uh, something along the lines of, "If we aren't extremely vigilant, it doesn't take a lot for the walls to start closing in." There, there's this grave sense of of the you know of the challenges, and I think that we all face it in our day to day lives um, with regards to what activities create greater risk in our lives. But uh, and you know, the, the vulnerability of the players on a personal level, on a team level, and on a broader level um, is, is pretty, the vulnerability of everyone is, is really evident. And it, it makes me wonder, like, what's it going to do to players to be living in, inside of it? it it's, not, it's not quite a bubble in the sense of the NBA, but it's still a bubble. And the stresses of doing that on a day-to-day basis are considerable. Whether or not we see more people opting out along the way is going to be awfully interesting because of that. Whether or not we see players who are able to kind of perform at their best, uh, assuming that the season is, is able to be pulled off, is going to be awfully interesting because there is this sense of gravity about everything that's happening um, around these guys, and it's, it's a condition unlike anything they've ever faced before. And as someone who covers nationally, uh, do you think that uh, if Mike Trout was to say – pull out, that that would have a pretty significant impact on other players uh, choosing to do that too? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, already David Price opting out to me is a pretty significant one because of how he's uh, been revered as a teammate in his different start in his different stops throughout his career. Um, so I, I think of him as an influencer. And yeah, I think that certainly you're, you know, if you see, if you see some of the preeminent participant, you know, players in the sport uh, pulling out of uh, pulling out of the game, it's, I think that other people are going to take notice. There are different economic incentives to stay versus go, which is a sad reality in some ways, um, because everyone faces mostly the same health dilemmas. 
but you know, in, in someone like David Price uh, or like Mike Trout or like Buster Posey is better financially positioned to absorb not playing this year. Um, but uh, nonetheless, when when the best players in the sport decide to take a pass on it, or if they do, right? Like we're still speculating on what's Trout going to do, what's Posey going to do, among others. Yeah, I, I think that it's hard not to have that kind of resonated, uh, you know, in, in different ways for guys. Um, kind of like jumping off of that point. Another thing that I've like, I'm curious to see how it plays out is how each player approaches, you know, approaches the way that they conduct themselves, how that'll affect clubhouse culture. You know, how important clubhouse culture is in baseball and the A's are talking about instituting a rule system and like potentially putting on like a fine in place. If, you know, if a player goes out or like, the team hears about it or, you know, so there's more incentive for people to be disciplined. So um, in a sport, you know, where clubhouse culture is really important, I think that'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays into all this. Yeah. I was thinking just about things like pitcher catcher bonding even now is kind of a little different, I think under, under the circumstances. Yeah. I could, I could jump in on that and a little bit on, on this whole subject of Tony Walters, the catcher with the Rockies, he, during this time off, he actually spent some time with the pitchers because he lives in Scottsdale, Arizona. And what happens with the Rockies is that a lot of players are encouraged strongly to move there during their minor league careers. So he was able to play catch, catch some bullpens. They did it in a socially um, distant way. And he experimented with some masks that he could wear underneath his catcher's helmet. I, I don't know if he has one that, that's suitable, so he's looked at that. And to, to go back to players who are opting out slash deciding not to play, there is one aspect of this that kind of colors the decision, I believe, and that's um, Ian Desmond. He has 10 years and 27 days service time. David Price has 10 years and 164 days service time. How is that important? They are fully vested in the major league pension. And as a former general manager that I was talking to during the break said, they play for money, but they also play for pension. So if you had enough money, which a lot of these guys, let's face it, they would have to really be silly not to have enough money to, to get through this, <laughs> to get through the rest of their lives and maybe their children's children's lives. But if you want to take care of your family and have money coming in the rest of the way, Players really work hard to get to that 10-year mark. And guys who are, uh, who are opting out, I'm going to say that probably a number of them are at that 10-year mark to where, let's say they never come back. They've done everything that they can to assure themselves of the best possible income for the family beyond the career. And that's, that, that is something that I think we on the outside underrate. We would think about it in our own lives but that pension thing is huge for players. The players celebrate. The clubhouses celebrate when a guy gets to 10 years. So that's why I don't know how many guys are going to just say, hey, I'm not going to do this. Even some of the players that are making a lot of money, that 10-year mark is a very important thing for them. And for the younger guys who, who are making major league minimums, uh, certainly a lot to, for them to think about uh, as well. Let's stay on the topic of health just for, for one more second here. Um, I think a couple of you have written on this. Alex uh, Coffey, I think you've written on this. What can teams do as far as injury prevention is concerned? Because I, I think you, you don't have to just worry about 
you know, uh, healthier related to coronavirus, but there's, there's definitely got to be concerns with, uh, with physical health too, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's something that the ASGM, David Force, has been monitoring. Um, he's been watching what's going on in Korea and injuries have kind of been piling up over there. Um, and they, they don't have the exact, it wasn't the exact same timeline in terms of like stopping and starting with playing that we experienced over here, but it's similar enough, I think, to, to pique his interest. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the A's are kind of fortunate in the sense, I'm sure like every team kind of prioritizes injury prevention to a degree, but, um, but they really prioritize it. And they have this whole system called functional range conditioning that's kind of um, emphasizes mobility, um, joint by joint mobility and trying to move a player through ranges, his greatest ranges of motion to prevent injury in, in the future. So, um, so they're definitely going to take, you know, more lengths to prevent injuries, but, um, but they kind of have this foundation in place, um, that they can, you know, work off of. Thomas or Alex, do you have anything to add on, on that subject? Well, when I look at this, there are a couple of things. First, um, your key players are going to want to be out there every day. A lot of guys get to 150, 155 games. You don't see as many getting to 162, partly because of stimulant testing. Let's be honest about that. But a lot of the key players will want to, go, will want to get through every single game of the 60-game sprint. However, in this condensed schedule with less of a spring training, you do run some injury risks. And I noticed like the Rockies and a few other teams, what they have done is um, not filled the whole 60-player player pool. So there are some guys that probably could help a major league team that are out there. They have to be working out on their own, and they may be able to come into this. Other thing that I've seen, I've seen it from Trevor Story, from Nolan Arenado, is guys are reporting lighter. Part of it is that their bodies are used to this, meaning that in spring training, they report at a certain weight, and then it's usually seven to nine to 10 pounds lighter by this time of the year. So a lot of them are showing up a lot lighter, and that may help with some of the pulled muscles and other situations like that. But let's face it, guys are going to get hurt. Guys are going to run into each other. They're going to run into walls. The ball hurts when it hits you. So you're going to have to have some form of depth and some sort of plan to make sure you can get through this. Alex Spear, have you heard anything with regards to the Red Sox on this? Well, uh, yeah, I think that they've been, you know, much as uh, much as Alex talked about with uh, with the A's interest in the KBO, the Red Sox have been inter- interested in foreign leagues, not just baseball, but also uh, the resumption of uh, the resumption of soccer in Europe and uh, and some spikes in injury rates that have occurred there for things like hamstring injuries. Um, beyond that, you know, I, it's it's really interesting. Uh, you know, Dr. Christopher Ahmad who's the head team physician of the Yankees, um, talked to him for talked to him a, a little while back, and he, he had been concerned enough about the possibility of a Tommy John pandemic following, uh, following the shutdown um, to write about that, which was you know, not, not something you usually see a, a team physician writing about. He was worried more about the amateur player pool, that uh, there were going to be guys ramping up too quickly and thus incurring injury risks on the pitching side of things. Um, major league teams have obviously been taking a number of measures in order to try uh, to keep their guys in shape and ready for this condensed, you know, summer camp, which is, I, I think, a, I don't know, I, I don't like the title too much, but they've tried to have them at a ready point for this three-week period. But whether or not they're actually able to get guys to, to build up and be ready for the start of the season is going to be 
awfully fascinating to see and, and, and subjects guys to potential, another potential layer of injury risk. On the other hand, it is a 60-game season, so you also have the opportunity to maybe have some of the fewer of the repetitive use injuries uh, that exist later in the season uh, in a season that is shortened like this. So uh, there is a there is like a countervailing effect there, but you know at the start of the season uh, that depth is going to be tested immediately and often. Can I add a couple of things to that? Um, yeah, go ahead. First of all. Before Major League Baseball shut things down when there, was a, when there was a rash of positive tests, a lot of teams and a lot of players, and I know what was going on here, here in Denver, they were doing live batting practice sessions at Coors Field. Uh, um, and some of them were doing it on their own at other places. I know of another pitcher, Chichi Gonzalez, he actually played against an amateur team of high school and college players live batting practice sessions. Um, so. I think they're a little bit better off than, say, they would be um, just at the start of a normal spring training. But having that shut down and then ramping back up, that could create some situations. But with the 30-man roster to start the season, and I was around here in 2012 when the Rockies went to um, a bizarre four-man rotation, but they paired the pitchers where one guy would pitch 75 pitches and then the other guy was scheduled. The other guy was a starter type. He would come in behind him and pitch 75 pitches. I think that if you're creative in setting up your rotation, you could almost, at least with a couple of spots there, maybe even two or three spots, have, have, have one starter that you expect five innings or 85 pitches out of, then, a, then another starter type come in and pick up either if the guy doesn't get to that or after he gets there, pick up two or three innings. Then you can switch those two guys the next time through the rotation. So there are a lot of things that you can do to cut down on this, but who, who knows if it's going to work. Um, that, that's what happens in winter ball, by the way, is that you're able to, because um, teams have more than five starters, they're able to pair them that way. Sports Info Solutions is excited to announce its Football Analytics Challenge. Contestants will use Sports Info Solutions data to determine which defensive line position is the most valuable and how does the value change based on factors like in-game situation. Registration is now open and submissions are due for preliminary judging by Sunday, July 19th. Three finalists will be chosen to present their work live to a panel of judges including Matt Manicharian, Aaron Schatz, and John Park from the Indianapolis Colts front office. In addition to some great exposure within the industry, winner will receive a free one-year subscription to the SIS Data Hub Pro. And the best part, all proceeds from the event will go to the United Negro College Fund. A minimum $1 donation is required for entry, but we encourage any of our listeners to donate to this worthy cause. For more information and to register today, check out the pinned tweet on the Sports Info Solutions Twitter account. That's at sportsinfo underscore SIS. So I wanted to I wanted to move away from coronavirus, but stay with another important topic, the topic of social justice in MLB, because this is going to be an ongoing story as, as things progress. Thomas, you have, have you had the chance to talk to Ian Desmond? Were you surprised by what he did and what kind of impact do you think it had? Ian Desmond is a very thoughtful man, um, not just a ball player, but a man. I was surprised by it simply because we didn't discuss that before he did it because he, he tends to 
keep kind of a close circle, and that close circle is within the game of baseball. Um, I knew that he was struggling with, with, with what's going on in the world. Frankly, as an African-American man, I struggle with it. And I, um, when I saw Ian post um, about some incidents that he had dealt with, what it did for me and others is that we all could shake our heads and say, yeah, you're not immune because we could, we could post our own things. I think it had some impact coming from, coming from a Major League Baseball player. What I liked about his nine-page Instagram post about it was he asked a lot of questions. He discussed some things that angered him. He discussed some things that confused him. He discussed some things in society, in baseball. But then he said, I don't have all the answers. And that's kind of where we are here is that we are all working to get answers in this. So I commend him for what he did. And as I said, the, the where he stands in his career, no one begrudges him that. And when you look at the Rockies, they brought him in here because this team had been very much a homegrown team. And the general manager, Jeff Breidich, he felt that they needed a little bit of change in the culture. And the first two years he was here, you could look at the numbers and the ground balls as opposed to launch angle and everything else. They weren't the numbers you wanted. But some of the things that happened within this team changed quite a bit. I remember we had a conversation a couple of times that he watched this group that had come up together. They were all these grinder types where if you're struggling, you just work harder. And sometimes you work harder very quietly, not really relying on your teammates. Desmond was part of, hey, there's another way to do this because he had been with playoff teams other places. So Ian Desmond is a very well looked up to character with the Colorado Rockies. So when he spoke, a lot of people listened. I know that um, I wrote a story that's on the site now. Trevor Story said that he had spoken quite a bit to Ian Desmond um, throughout this process and he understood what was going on and it and it opened his eyes. So I think when when you look at Ian Desmond, who at at the time um he and Yancy Almani, whose father is from the Dominican Republic, they were the only black players on this team. There, there obviously were Latino players, but as far as African American black players, they were the only ones it was a different way of looking at things. And a lot of guys, they kind of lean on their own experiences saying, hey, um, maybe there's, there are things we can say. Maybe there are things we can do about this. Bud Black, the manager, has said he's not going to begrudge anyone if they do decide to kneel during the national anthem or whatever. All right. Uh, so, Alex Spear, I wanted to, to talk about the Red Sox statement and about Tory Hunter's experience uh, hearing taunts in the stands from fans. Uh, uh, racial slurs. Uh, fans in the stands, not an issue for now, but have the Red Sox indicated anything that they might do regarding the, the Black Lives Matter movement or anything uh, that, that might be coming up or any, anything that you picked up on uh, from reporting on this? Yeah, I mean, the, the Red Sox obviously have been uh, in, in the, you know, Fenway Park, the fans at Fenway Park have been, uh, have been rightly scrutinized based on the fact that there are documented instances of, you know, of racial epithets being, you know, racist, you know, racist insults being, uh, being thrown at, at African-American players in, and it's not just, uh, it's not just Adam Jones in 2017. It's not just Torrey Hunter during his playing career. 
uh, there is a you know there's a, there's a long history of this. You would see uh, you would see visiting players, visiting black players, coming into Fenway Park and ending up in fights uh, with fans in the bleachers when they were going after balls. Uh, you know, I remember Carl Everett coming in. I feel like I, I, I feel like I have memories of uh, Gary Sheffield kind of tussling with fans uh, while going after balls. Uh, you know, in the right field corner. Um, you know, this is. It's it's disgraceful and unacceptable behavior. The Red Sox have been uh, painfully aware of it, um, you know, and painfully mindful of it, uh, particularly in twenty seven since twenty seventeen when Adam Jones spoke out against it, which uh, in in forceful fashion uh, and kind of forced a uh, a time of both um, organizational self scrutiny and self examination, as well as uh, as well as you know introspection on the part of uh, hopefully, a lot of people who go to Fenway Park. In terms of actual uh, plans, aside from kind of reinforcing the zero tolerance policy uh, in Fenway Park, and basically the the Red Sox have a policy in which uh, any anyone who's you know anyone who uses racist language, uh, racist epithets in Fenway Park is banned for life um, from the uh, from from going to the park. Uh, I have not yet heard of specific plans uh, in order to that that are going to continue the conversation, but I think that it's the organization clearly feels an obligation to continue that that conversation um, in some in some respect moving forward. Alex Coffey, you wrote about uh, MLB and the example that it sets at the top in terms of the demographics and racial makeup of those who work uh, in the commissioner's office. What kind of reaction did you get to that piece, and what was your overall sense from from working on it? That was kind of a it like had three iterations. It's, it was originally going to be a piece about um, you know all these statements that teams were putting out that the league put out, and you know what constitutes a good statement. That was kind of interesting to me, you know, because everyone seemed to have their opinions on what all the individual parties were doing. Um, but when I was talking to, um, I talked to two professors that specialize in race relations and sports. And one of them was like, have you ever looked at MLB's executives page? Like, just look, he's like, why are you so surprised by the, the, you know, the league taking nine days to respond to the killing of George Floyd? Like, if you look at their executives page, it's just all people that look like Rob Banfred. And I, um, I went, you know, and clicked through and sure enough, it's like, <laughs> not the most diverse offering. It's um, I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, I think it's like eight white males, you know, at the top of the organization. So his point was basically like, you know, you could bring in consultants um, and they might be helpful, but it doesn't replace having someone in the room who can bring a different perspective to the table. Um, so from then on, the nature of the story kind of, kind of changed. Um, but um, as far as reactions go, I heard from a couple black players from around the league, just, who had a couple like follow-up questions about, you know, like, is it true? Like a lot of them were just kind of in disbelief that this was true. Um, I heard from a couple of people who worked in MLB who had issues with, you know, who had felt that diversity wasn't um, a priority and, you know, uh, basically were happy that the league was held accountable. Um, I heard from MLB because they, <laughs> they, uh, they claim that Tony Reagan's who's in charge of, uh, I believe baseball and softball development. Um, I believe that's what he's in charge of. They, they say that he should be counted amongst the, um, the highest executive rank of MLB, but we, we were going off of in our research, um, 
what MLB had listed on its website as well as what it had listed in its media guides. And they had never listed Tony Reagan's in this group. Um, if you just go off of those, those guidelines, um, it shows that MLB has only had one person of color either promoted or hired to its, to that level of, uh, executive ranks in MLB. So, um, so I heard from them too. Um, but yeah, that's about, that's about it as far as reaction goes. I'd just like to add that, you know, the problem that exists in MLB exists in nearly every organization uh, and in nearly every subsection of every organization of Major League Baseball. And, you know, I, uh, you know, one, one thing that, that I've been, that I have been struck by, you know, as we were observing the protests surrounding the killing of George Floyd, um, you know, Major League Baseball was getting ready for the draft. And at, at that point, you know, part of me was, was asking, well, you know, as we kind of regurgitate what scouts will say about players, like the very language that we use to describe players often has, uh, often can have biases um, that are embedded in that. And, you know, and uh, it, it, there is bias that exists in every aspect of the sport. Uh, and there are systemic issues that create entry barriers into the Major League Baseball pipeline. Um, both for players and for executives and for coaches, um, that hinders development at every step of the way. This is a this is a massive problem that you know baseball has talked about addressing over a long period of time, but baseball has not addressed. Um, I have covered every level of the minor leagues, and also amateur baseball, and I have seen so many different things here. I mean, I could go on, I could probably go on for an hour right now. Let's look top of baseball, okay? Or let's look at the top of all these organizations. And there, there, there's a gentleman, African-American black man in the, in the um, Major League Baseball office who, who has been working with this particular issue. Here's what we're looking at. You've got um, a lot of Ivy League people that are general managers that are running organizations and how do they get to the top of the organization well they go to an internship program where they get involved why is it that these are going to ivy leaguers because baseball teams pay so little that the ivy leaguers are the only ones who can't even afford to do this so it's self-selecting it's self-narrowing now by the way i'm talking about tyrone brooks who worked with the pirates and the indians and the giants yep and, we work with them too yeah we, we, we we've discussed that particular issue so you've got that there let's look at some separate issues i remember there there's a gentleman named richard lapchick he does the uh Racial report cards on all sports. Each year it comes out as far as the hiring of blacks and women and, and gays and, and, and lesbians and all those. And he has talked about, this is something that happened on the field many, many years ago. And I'll just tell you a little story here. There was one day, Darren Oliver was pitching for the Rockies and Charles Johnson was catching. And I'm in the clubhouse and I see them and we're talking and Darren goes, man, we should be Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. He goes, how many all-black batteries are there? What happened many, many years ago, I feel, is that there's something that Richard Lapchick talks about, position stacking, where there, in those scouting reports, there are certain attributes that they want from a black player or, or, or that they'll accept. And suddenly, all those guys got moved to the outfield. Maybe some of them should have been catching. Maybe some of them should have been playing shortstop. 
but they were all stacked in the outfield competing against each other. And I think that helped drive down some participation in the game because it was just simply hard to get on the field. So I can go from from the amateur level to the minor league level. I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. They have a Blue Jays phone club forever. They had an Orioles phone club. The local families would put up players. And I talked to George Fanning, who was put in the Appalachian League Hall of Fame, the, the late general manager of the Bluefield Orioles. And he, he, he told me, and I ended up writing it, and some people didn't like it, that there were families who said, I want to keep players, and they'd send them black players. They'd say, I don't want this player. And George would say, well, you don't want one of our players. Um, so there, there's so much that happens. There's so much to unpack in this that um, it's going to take a long time to unpack it. What I like is that players are speaking up. Black players, white players, players are speaking up and they're saying this isn't right. And for so many years, a lot of these conversations were whispered conversations like, man, um, you know, all, all of us end up playing in the outfield. I look at the front office and there's nobody in there. Now players are speaking up about it. Um, hopefully at the amateur level, we can find ways to make baseball more affordable because baseball's become, as Kyle Korver, the NBA player, once said, he said, a lot of my friends were playing the country club sports, tennis, golf, baseball. That hurt me as a baseball person. But a lot, a, a, a lot is going on. I, I, I kind of feel like the key is, and it's a shame that Tony Regans isn't promoted the way he should be, because the key to players, the key to fans, the key to developing your future executives is are these guys playing baseball when they're little? Thomas, thank you. As I said, this is an ongoing story, and it's in the best interest of everyone for the conversation to continue. All right, so this wraps up this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I want to say thanks to each of the three uh, writers who joined us today. Thomas Harding, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me here. Alex Spear, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you having me, and, and, and I really appreciate Thomas and Alex, everything that you guys have said uh, Thomas, I, I really hope that, you know, that these are conversations that um, we can all continue to have and expand upon because I think that truly, like, you know, this is a really weird season that's coming up, um, you know, whatever, whatever form it takes, whether full or not, <laughs> the best thing that will come of it is anything that we can do to, you know, to pull baseball into a better direction. And hopefully there's, there's a movement of uh, of society as well, but the greater awareness that exists, Thomas, with everything that you are identifying, every layer, uh, and Alex, that goes for you too. I appreciate the vigilance that you've had um, on the subject. You know, the the greater the possibility of of progress in a number of social institutions. So I think I think all of you guys. All right, and Alex Coffee, thanks for joining us. Yeah, that's a tough act to follow up, Alex. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to go short and sweet and say thanks to everyone for you know, um, your time and stay safe and stay sane in this crazy, you know, crazy era we're living in. All right. Uh, have a good night, everyone. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.